please take a seat. Let me add my welcome to you. My name's Lloyd. I'm one of the, the pastors here. And if you're in grade four to six, then please feel free to go with Miss Rachel to your class now. But let me say a happy Canada Day to you. Or was that yesterday? Happy Canada Day weekend uh, from a Chinese-Scottish person who is a permanent resident of Canada. So I, do, I can kind of say that. Uh, but I'm glad uh, to be here, glad to be in Canada, glad to be with you. Um, you guys obviously didn't have um, travels this weekend, and it's good that you're here with us this uh, morning. We're actually in Luke 12, and we've been going through a series on and off now for a while, um, through Luke. It's in the L that's there. It's not just because I'm here and I have lots of L's in my name, it's because we're going through Luke but the beauty of preaching through a whole book, and it's taken a while, is that you don't skip through hard parts. Phil has said that already. And I trust that um, as we look through this passage today, which we've had read, thank you, Natasha, um, that the Lord would use that to speak to us in the ways that we need this morning. So why don't I pray for us, and we'll begin. Father, Son, Spirit, thank you that you're a good God, your love endures, that you speak to us, you don't leave us in the dark, uh, you speak to us about ourselves, more importantly, you, you speak to us about who you are and what you're like, how that impacts the way that we see ourselves, the world, and those around us, and how we relate to you. So we ask that you would guide us uh, this morning, use my words in the ways that, that you would have them be used, and have things of me fall to the side, but things of you be um, brought to light and remain in the light in our lives. Would your spirit do that for us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, uh, I've got three points for us. The first is get ready for the master's returning. Secondly, get ready for the master's rewarding. And number three, will it be an R? Get ready for the master's revealing. Okay? So we've got returning, rewarding, and revealing. Okay? Get ready for the master's returning. Verse 35 says this, Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. There's a call here. And several pictures for, for us to understand. The call is at the beginning and at the end um, of verses 35 and, uh, and 40 in that paragraph. Be dressed and be ready. You also must be ready. Well, what kind of ready is he talking about? Be dressed, ready for service. Gird yourself, literally. Uh, keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet... So that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door and welcome him in. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them waiting and watching when he returns. So Jesus is the master here, and uh, he's going to a wedding banquet, and he was going to be gone a while. The wedding banquets in those days were really long affairs. None of today's kind of pathetic, get it over and done with in a day, or, you know, a wedding in a few hours type thing for a few thousand dollars or maybe more. 
No, the wedding banquets were the parties of the day, of the day then, lasting several days, maybe even longer. So the master here could be gone for quite a while. In fact, it might even be the master's wedding banquet, and it might be even longer if a honeymoon is involved. So picture the servants before the master, right as the horse taxi or whatever he was going in was about to leave. The master's giving final instructions to the servants. Don't forget to, to, to water this. Make sure you put those things in the jar. Don't let the cow stay in the sun for too long. And the main servants are like, of course, of course, of course. Don't worry, we've got it. We've got this. Go and have fun. Enjoy the wedding. And the other servants are behind the door, aren't they? They're waiting, itching for the master to go. Once the master gets on the horse taxi, the servants all breathe a sigh of relief. Whew. High five each other do a little jig, throw off their aprons. We've got the place to ourselves. Who knows for how long? It's going to be a while. Hopefully this is a long wedding banquet and they'll be gone for a while and we can just do whatever we want. Jesus is using this well-known picture of a wedding banquet to illustrate something important. He's saying that he will be the master who will be away a while. And he's preparing those who are listening, his disciples and followers, for a time when he will be away and what they are to do when he is away. They'll be tempted to slack off, to binge watch Netflix and not bother with the tidying up because the master is not immediately around. He's going to be gone a while. The temptation will be to take that nap, to fall asleep to their roles and responsibilities. But Jesus says, don't do that. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Stay awake. The master is coming back. You see, Jesus came uh, that first time, and he turned the world upside down. God became man. The son of God became son of man so that all men and women uh, could be sons and daughters of God. But through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, we say this in the creed every week. We said it just there. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And what's next? He will come again to judge the living and the dead. When he comes again, it's often referred to as the second coming. This has not happened yet. And we are in between that time, the first and second coming. On that day, when Jesus comes back, on that day, his power comes over us and we'll be gloriously liberated from what we are now becoming um, and we'll become our true selves. The eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has entered into the heart of man. What will happen to those who love him? What will happen on that final day? The greatest artist with the greatest imagination in history, and I quote uh, Tim Keller here, cannot even get close, can't imagine the kind of greatness that will erupt through the souls of all of us who, on that day, find ourselves coming into the hands of the king. When the king lays his hand on us and his royal power comes over us, we finally achieve the glorious liberty of the sons and daughters of God. That's what's going to happen at the second coming. The point of the Bible's teaching on the second coming of Christ is not to help us find that great day, it's not how we will find the great day, but how that great day will find us. The point of the teaching of the Bible and the second coming is always ethical in force. The Bible is saying, don't worry about when it is. Lots of people obsess about that, don't they? If you've been in many Christian circles, you'll find that. 
But it's not worrying about when it's coming. Just know that it can come at any time and to consider what kind of lifestyle, urgency, joy, optimism, and energy will be the life characteristics of anyone who lives in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to live in a different way because of it. The Bible says some amazing things. 1 John 3 says, We do not know what he is like, but we know when he appears we will be like him. The second coming of Christ, the day is going to be so glorious that it says that to hope for it, not to get there, but just to want it, is to be transformed. So we're told to live in light of that day. Or to put it another way, don't fall asleep even when it gets dark. In all of Jesus' illustrations and parables about his return, it's always in the night. It's always the nighttime. I don't know if you've noticed that. Nighttime is when we naturally fall asleep. We struggle to stay awake in that time. Our rhythms, our circadian rhythms, uh, if set right, help us to know it's time to sleep. The age between the first and the second comings of Jesus are dark. It seems natural to fall asleep. It's easy for, for people to fall asleep spiritually, to fall asleep to reality, to allow dreams or nightmares to reign, but not have the reality of God be the real thing, what they are alive to and awake to. Jesus says, don't. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Be ready, for the master is returning. Spiritually speaking, stay awake. There is a time for sleeping, but that's not now. There is a time to stay up, and that time is now, because Jesus is returning. The master is returning, so live expectantly. Live lightly. Live ready. Live with your coat on, your game face on. Don't live like the rich man from the previous parable who thinks, oh, this grain... It's all mine. I'm going to build some more barns. I'm going to put everything in it. This grain is all mine. I'm going to do this. All of this is mine. It's all my doing and it's all for me. But he doesn't see, live to see the effects. We're to remember that this life is to be an expectation of Christ's return. That this is not um, ultimately our, our home. Our home is, is with him. And when we live in a way that reflects that, something changes. Um, Miriam and I and the kids have house sat for our friends in Langley a couple of times. Uh, we love staying at their home. Um, they have stairs, which our kids think is the height of luxury because uh, we live in a basement suite. And so stairs are like, oh, this is amazing. But imagine uh, when we stayed that we assumed that they would never come back. We'd put our clothes in, in their cupboards, throw theirs out. I mean, they, theirs don't fit anyway, so we might as well put our stuff in there. The food that we didn't like of theirs, we would throw out. And we'd put our, our, our photos maybe on their walls. They've got loads of photos of their, their wedding and of their kids. What if we took them down and thought, oh, we, we're here now, so why don't we put ours up? We would be forgetting their return, neglecting the return, preoccupied with the slower-paced Langley life. We'd be asleep to their return. But we are told the master is returning, returning to his own place, and we are to be ready. Live ready for service, with lamps burning, ready for the master to return. Don't fall asleep, stay awake, be ready. Romans 13, 11 says this, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. 
So my question for us this morning is this. What makes you fall asleep to reality? What makes you fall asleep spiritually? We're to be aware of what deadens the reality that Christ will return. We're to be aware of what dulls our readiness and our awakeness. Is it Candy Crush or Pokemon Go that deadens that reality? Is it pining for a permanent place to have or own or live in a beautiful but transient place like Vancouver? What, what dulls our sense that Jesus is coming back, he's returning? Because we're to be ready. Get ready. Don't forget the master is returning. So secondly, that's first, don't forget the master's returning. Secondly, get ready for the master's rewarding. Notice these references uh, from our passages to, it will be good for the servants if, in verse 37 it says, it will be good if you're watching when he comes. Verse 38, it'll be good uh, for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak, it will be good. Verse 43, it will be good if the servant is doing his job when the master returns. These are the same word as blessed uh, that was in the Beatitudes in, in chapter 6. It's almost saying, blessed are the servants, right? Jesus offers a beatitude for those who heed his advice. Those who are the objects of God's pleasure are those who are found waiting when the Lord comes. Their expectation will be met with favor. And what will the, the master do, all being well? What is good? Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table, and he will go and wait on them. Hmm. Jesus will be pleased with those who wait for him, that he will serve them at a banquet table, which pictures for us the eschatological, the last banquet for us. How remarkable is, is this? It's kind of boggling, really. It's strange, it's beautiful, it's outrageous, extravagant, exuberant. For those found ready and waiting for the master, he will dress himself to serve, get them to recline at the table, a place of honor, and go and wait on them. It's an incredible promise, almost an inconceivable picture. He will reward our waiting and service in the darkness by waiting and serving us in the light. Later in the passage, the, the master puts the servant in charge of all his possessions as the reward, ruling and reigning with the master. What an offer that is. It's been said, actually, that in the Bible, there are five, basically five types of promises. Firstly, we shall be with Christ. Secondly, we will become like Christ. Thirdly, we will see glory and be taken in by it. Fourthly, we will be fed or feasted or entertained or some kind of um, configuration of that sort. Or fifth, we will rule and reign with Christ. Basically, there are those five in Scripture. All those promises are given to those who, who follow Christ. They sound good, right? I especially like the feeding and feasted one, but that's just me. 
almost all of them are here, aren't they, in our passage? Did you notice that? I wonder what you feel about rewards. And not just those points that you get when you buy lots of things from Save On Foods or Safeway or something like that. They're rewards, but they're not really rewards, are they? Let's be honest. I live um, much of life trying to get in as little trouble as possible. The bar is very low for me. Uh, When I say I'm not bad, it actually means I'm really good. Because not bad is really good in my book. Everything is negative. Everything is kind of in the the, the negative, I've been told. Phil told me that the other day. What if we're actually to live for what's positive and the actual reward, okay? Instead of kind of living as if we're like, oh, I just don't want to get into trouble, which is most of my life, but saying, I want to get this reward. There's something here that, that I want that is good here. In The Weight of Glory, which is a sermon from C.S. Lewis 75 years ago, he describes three kinds of relationships between action and reward. Okay? Action on the one hand and reward on the other. There's three. Okay? The first one is this. An unnatural reward. For example, a man marrying for money. Those two are not connected. It's unnatural. right? Makes them out to be a mercenary if someone marries for money. That's the first one, an unnatural reward. The second one is a proper or natural reward. For example, a person marrying for love. That is a good action for, a reward for that action. The third one is a proper or natural reward that is not known by the person until the reward is actually received. Okay? So there's a proper and natural reward, but you don't know it until it's, it's ultimately received. So he gives the example here of a boy learning Greek, right? (laughs) Where there's a gradual transition from drudgery to enjoyment, and only as he approaches the reward does it begin to enjoy it for its own sake, okay? So knowing that not many of us learn Greek or have learned Greek, (laughs) Paul Tresco's not here. Um, This was 75 years ago, and it was in Oxford, and so we can kind of forgive him that, okay? Let's bring it into Vancouver. Um, at UGM, where I also work, uh, we tell the guys that they are integrated beings, body, mind, and soul. And so as we work with them, as we um, journey with them, we want them to grow in these different areas of, of their lives, right? It's not just getting one area and nailing that and thinking that's going to be sorted, but all of these areas we need to, to, to grow in. And so we encourage, as part of that body thing, is to get them to run and to do exercise. There's so much evidence to support exercise being beneficial in recovery or in life full stop. And so we have a running club, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The unnatural reward for the guys in the program is that when they run, they don't get into trouble. Okay? Or, actually, we give incentives for them to run. So when they run for five weeks, we give them a pair, a brand new pair of running shoes, 150 bucks worth of new running shoes. So if you do that for five weeks and you show that you're going to do that, then they'll, they'll have that. It'd be an unnatural reward, a disconnected motivation to run if they thought to themselves, I'm going to run those five weeks because I'm going to get some running shoes. That would be a bit mercenary, you could say, because it's not connected to the outcome. And it doesn't really make sense because they'd be getting running shoes and not wanting to run, <laughs> right? So it doesn't quite make sense. But that's an unnatural reward there. The natural reward for the guys to run is to get fit, 
to get fitter, to get stronger, to grow, to get better mental health, to see that come. That'd be a natural reward. That'd be the second category. But the third one is this, is the natural and proper reward. It's not known until that reward is achieved. The final reward is that they realize that running is actually kind of fun. Not that they have to do it, but actually, and I've been told this, I've not got to this place yet, but I've been told this, running can be fun. Endorphins, satisfaction, when they finish a 5K or a 10K race, which we encourage them to do, the buzz that they get from the cheers and the supporters and the applause and the high fives and the atmosphere, they'll find out. That reward will come. But the point is that when they start, they start not having any idea that it might take those running shoes to get them going. But once they do, they probably buy running shoes for the rest of their lives because they enjoy it and they see the good in it. And they've experienced the, their bodies used in God-given ways to their God-given bodies. And so the Christian life is kind of like that third category. The Christian life and the here and now best fits into the third category. Those who have gone to glory are in the second one, seeing that everlasting life and seeing Jesus um, is the proper natural reward of earthly discipleship to him. Following Jesus here, the reward is seeing him face to face in the life to come. But those of us who have not yet attained this reality, who are still here, cannot know, cannot know in the same way and cannot begin to know except by A, continuing to obey, and B, finding the first reward of our obedience in this increasing power to desire to want that ultimate reward, to want that in the future, to obey now, even when I don't fully see what is, is being offered in the future, what is ultimately going to be offered and rewarded to us, that of heaven and of Jesus' undiluted presence with us, with me. So there's a passage in Matthew, where a servant is told by his master, well done, good and faithful servant. Many of us will know that passage. How do you engage with that when you hear that? Well done, good and faithful servant. What does it make you feel? How do you engage with that? I often hear it spoken of when people have died. Oh, he'll have... He'll hear the, she'll hear the, 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 the words of the master, well done, good and faithful servant. But often we are reticent to say it of people before they've died, and certainly we are reticent to want it or to claim it for ourselves, right? But what if that is more a false kind of humility that doesn't understand that wanting a reward can be the most pure form of humility, we all want to be like self-deprecating. Certainly, I've been brought up that way. You could not make yourself big, uh, to, to, to not trumpet your, your accomplishments. But what if, yes, we can do that, but there is a purity to wanting that praise that is good. Think of a dog obeying an owner. Go, fetch that. And he comes back, and he's so happy, isn't he? <laughs> or a child doing something and getting the laughter of their parents and just wanting to do it again because they love to see their parents praise them. Or the student getting an A from the teacher after struggling all year with algebra. That is good to want that reward, to want that praise. 
Yes, of course, again, it can be misplaced and overemphasized. We can care too much about what people say. But there is something pure about wanting to please a superior. There is something beautiful about wanting a reward from God when that comes from serving him, for him, to him. The reward for serving the master by being ready, watching, waiting is good. It's good. The reward is opening the door to him straight away when he knocks and seeing the smile of satisfaction of appreciation of praise because it's his satisfaction, his appreciation and his praise of hearing well done, good and faithful servant. Not only because not, not only at the end of our lives, but maybe even each day, because he's the one who says it. He's the one who says it. It is the natural and proper reward, friends, now and perfectly in the future, because he himself is the reward. He dresses himself to serve, gives us a place of honor, and feeds us with the feast of all feasts. We are welcome into his presence and find that in him all we've ever wanted is there. Belonging, feasting, welcome, being waited on, rest, home, nourishment. It's all there. It's in him. We can seek his rewards unashamedly unabashedly we can receive his reward now and anticipating it in the future that's good friends I hope you find some freedom there it's good to want the reward from this kind of master because he is this kind of master okay so that's um, get ready for the masters returning get ready for the masters rewarding and now get ready for the masters Revealing. Peter asks, Lord, are you willing, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? You can count on Peter, can't you, to ask a clarifying question. Him and Thomas, they're never shy of asking questions because it, it makes them look ignorant. They don't mind that. They're up for doing that. That's the benefit to the rest of the class. He asks, actually, a good question because we read at the beginning of the chapter. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so they were all trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, "Be on your guard." And so, as Peter is true to form in asking a question, Jesus is true to form in answering his question with another question, and telling a different kind of parable. He says in verse. 42. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It'll be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. The way that the servants are reveals something of their heart in general. And more importantly, how they act when the master is away, reveals their heart towards the master. There are those who are faithful, wise managers, servants in charge of servants, 
who aren't, who aren't given responsibility because they have the T-shirt or because they have the name badge with manager on it. Rather, they have shown themselves to be worthy of the beginning of responsibility, and so they get more responsibility. Like Joseph in Potiphar's household, for example, in charge of everything. But there's a principle here. The way someone deals with small responsibility will give an indication of how they will handle big responsibility, especially when the master is away. In fact, how they are when the master is away reveals more clearly their own heart towards the master and therefore how they will handle the responsibility in the master's absence. And so we get some examples here in the parable. There are two kinds of managers. There's a faithful and wise manager who does his job, continues to do so as the manager is away. But there are also unfaithful managers, right? And there are three types of unfaithful managers. Ones that are blatantly disobedient, ones who are consciously disobedient, and some who are unconsciously disobedient. Okay, so really there's four, right? Faithful, and then there's the unfaithful ones, the blatantly disobedient, the, the, the consciously disobedient, and the unconsciously disobedient. The faithful managers are given more responsibility. They act on behalf of the master. The unfaithful servants, however, are, are given a due punishment for their disregard of responsibility. The punishment depends on, on how they've acted. The more blatant their disobedience, the more severe their punishment, and the less blatant their disobedience, the less severe. Still, there's a, a jarringness, isn't there, to punishment like it's been described here. And there's a jarringness to our modern day Western sensibilities. And it's just worth noticing that and paying attention to that. Any reference of judgment can feel jarring. We are those who have had the benefit of generations and generations of rule of law, of legal and enforcement systems that, though not perfect, allow ordinary people like us not to take the law into their own hands. And this is a great kind of privilege that actually many in this world today don't even know. We also live in a world where justice and judgment are not perfect and have been abused. And so we experience judgmentalism. We see unjust structures and unjust justice. And so we balk at any kind of justice or judgment. Who is anyone to judge? In most parts of the world where there has been war, where there has been conflict, where there is unjust uh, justice all over the place, um, real justice is all the more important, all the more coveted and sought after. In our parable, it is the master's household. It belongs to him. God is the just judge whose household it is and who sees it all. There were no cameras in those days, but even so he saw it all. How the servants acted when the master was away revealed it all. And so if you're here last week, uh, Phil spoke on uh, the passage which ends, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How the servants acted in the master's absence revealed their heart in general, but their heart towards the master in particular. So let's see that in the blatantly disobedient, uh, unfaithful manager. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. While I was doing my study this week, I wrote next to this verse, Disproportionate response. <laughs> I think that's a, an understatement you could say, right? 
Um, that's not very nice, you could say. <laughs> the master is late. The master is still not around. And so the manager beats everyone up, <laughs> eats everything, and gets drunk. Yes, he was given responsibility, but the way he exercised it showed what was really going on here, what his posture to the master was. In the master's absence, it showed what was going on in his heart. We had a rowdy French class when I was in secondary school. And one day, uh, Mr. Gregg left the room for a minute. Um, and all hell kind of broke loose. Lots of things were going on. And uh, when he, even when he came back in, he turned his back. And um, I just decided it'd be fun to jump outside the window onto the grass outside and jump back in. Uh, he had left for a minute, he'd come back. In his absence, I decided that my posture to French was, I don't care. What am I going to do learning French for? And so um, the way that I have learned French and know French is that I know one sentence that I memorize so that I can use it in all my exams. But really, I know nothing of French. I regret that now. But as soon as he left the classroom, there were fights going on. I decided to jump out of the classroom, jump back in, just because I could. In his absence, it showed my own heart to the teacher and to, to the French class. When the cat's away, the mice will play, so the saying goes, right? But that assumes, doesn't it, that the master is a claw-catching predator and that the, that, the, that the servants are prey to the master. When we see that, when we believe that, when our posture is that towards our master, to Jesus, Something is revealed of our own heart, is it not? The master's absence revealed a heart that had a lust of, for power for this servant, an addiction to pleasure, a desire to gorge himself with the food and the drink for him and his mates. But more than that, it revealed a heart that detested the master. And so this blatantly disobedient serv servant is cast out of the household, rejected, not merely uh, dismissed or demoted, but made to depart. You see, this blatant disobedience and disregard showed unbelief and hypocrisy. Hypocrisy means playing a role. He didn't care. He's not there for the master. He was in it for himself. That's blatant disobedience, but there's also conscious disobedience and unknowing disobedience. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, more will be asked. And so on the one hand, it's kind of scary, isn't it? Gulp. We have seen that we can be cast out and, and cast up we can be given more responsibility or we can kind of be told to leave. But in between that, there are different types of uh, responsibility and knowledge. And with that comes different levels of judgment and punishment as well. And so Peter asks, is this parable to us or for everyone? I think it's for everyone, but especially relevant for, for leaders. The, the, even leaders can be cut to pieces and placed with unbelievers. 
It's possible to say, my master is taking a long time coming, and then abuse your power to be self-indulgent. Or to think, my master is taking a long time coming, well, I'm going to give some false teaching. I'm going to live a double life. These servants, despite being leaders or household managers or servants or servants or priests or archdeacons or community group leaders or rectors or associates or headmasters or chaplains, they'll be judged and maybe judged even more harshly, which is harsh. But maybe that's good. Yesterday was Canada Day and there's lots to celebrate. Uh, My family are deeply grateful to, to be here And yet there is a complex Canadian history, is there not, that has layers and complexities that's messy. And I don't profess to know lots about this. I know there are untold horrors and yet to be told horrors done in the name of Christ or in the guise of church or church schools. It's right that those leaders will be judged by God who sees Leaders who will be seen by their actions as revealing their hearts towards a master who they're supposedly waiting for and watching with diligence, faithfulness and love, but instead they close themselves off to his return and revealing and so may well have closed them off to his reward. They will be judged. And that's good. Now this is scary stuff on one hand, right? But on the other hand, let me suggest it can be quite inviting as well. Some of you were at Rob and Richard's ordination a couple of weeks ago, and apart from how hot it was in that room, especially at the front when you're in robes, you may remember that sermon from 1 Corinthians about how all our actions one day will be tested in the fire. We all build, but no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, that is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on this foundation, Um, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. That work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. This is not talking about salvation, um, which is um, won by by Christ, but it's talking about the work that we do out of that, that that one day will be tested, our actions, right? How ready we are, how um, much we're living for his rewards rather than the world's rewards. The preacher there said, only what is done in love will last. Rob and Richard, as you're ordained um, into Anglican uh, priestly ministry, only what is done in love will last. And that stuck with me. All that is done in love will last. One day, it will all be seen. No matter how small, how insignificant. I got quite moved by it, in fact, sometime this week as I was reflecting on this. What an invitation that is. Yes, it's harsh and it could be difficult, but but God himself is inviting us to something beautiful, something that lasts. We all want to leave something that lasts, don't we? To participate in something that goes beyond us, even if it is graffiti on a wall that says Lloyd was here. (laughs) For the servant... Getting ready means watching and waiting for the master's return, caring for the master's household like it was his own. Every act done in love would be known by the master, distributing the food fairly, making sure everyone gets the same number of peas, a glass of water for Mary, 
an encouragement for Toby. An unheralded ordinary pastor in Saskatchewan celebrating 20 years of pastoral ministry. An ICU nurse talking to someone in a coma. A gentle reassurance to a traumatized client by a, a therapist. Another waking night for a parent as their kid is sick. Small things done with great love will last. So get ready for the master, his return, his reward, his revealing. Do so in big, grand ways. Please do, friends. And love to see that. But also do so in the small ways. In the insignificant, insignificant ways that people don't see. How will Christ's return affect your afternoon today? Your upcoming week? The rest of this year? Now there's no need to compare. But we are invited to step into what we know. Not what the person next to us knows. Not what our neighbour does. But simply what task you can do as you await the master. However small or big. That might move from duty to love. That might move from duty to love. And it's a subtle thing, isn't it? Really no one can see it. How we use our time at work, how we do the things in our lives, how we open a door, we can do that with malice. And, or everything that we do is such a subtle thing, but it's an invitation for us to do that in love, to do these things in love. May you know that you live before an audience of one. That before others you have nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to prove. You live before an audience of one. This master who's returning, who's rewarding, who's revealing. That you live before him. That he is the audience of one. So get ready for the master. His returning, his rewarding and his revealing. You'll notice that these points can be heard in different ways, right? The, 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 the eagle-eyed among you will see that. Get ready for the master's returning or get ready for the master's returning. Get ready for the master's revealing. Get ready for the master's revealing. But there's more than that that's also revealed. Our hearts are revealed, yes. Who really is our master? Remember the beginning of the passage the, the verse before, it's like where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is our master if it's not him? Because anything other than him being the master will promise much but deliver little. Will offer us the world but, but keep an emptiness and a burden and a dissatisfaction that lasts. What really is your master? Who really is your treasure? You see, Jesus Christ is the master who is unlike any other master. He is a judge who assesses our actions, who sees it all, but he is judged and takes on our sin. He bears it all so that we can be sure of where we stand with him. Our actions may fluctuate day by day, hour by hour, some with love, others with duty, others with disrespect, others with care, others with, uh, uh, with harshness. But his action does not fluctuate. We can look to the cross and we see the one whose life, death, resurrection, ascension, return means that we're, we can be sure of where we stand as we stand in him. 
as we trust in him, as we come to him in faith. Jesus Christ is the master who is unlike any other master. What he's asked of his servants, he will come to do. Nothing he asks us to do is beneath him to do. Nothing he gets us to do has he not actually done himself. He is the master who watches and waits. He calls on his disciples to watch with him at Gethsemane, but when they fail, and they failed, he goes to the cross anyway to die for them. He is the master who is cut into pieces to make us whole. He is the master who serves and who waits, who brings to us the banquet, who says, look what I've done. I became a servant. I became a slave, so one day you will reign with me. He's the one who says, you've had a difficult shift. You've had a difficult journey. You must be tired and dirty. Let me wash your feet. The banquet is ready. So we're to come to this master. This is the master who we're to serve. To allow him to serve us, that we might begin to serve others. Let's have a moment of quiet. And then I'll pray.